Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, well, perspective matters. There was a guy crossing the street to visit his neighbor. As he started to cross the street, a car was bearing down on him. So he stopped and backed up to the curb. The car stopped. So he started to cross, and the car started to move toward him. He changed direction and went back to the curb, and the car again moved toward him. Then he moved to run across the street, and the car swerved in that direction. He moved left, and the car moved left. He moved right, and the car moved right. And finally, he stopped in the middle of the road, and the car screeched to a stop right in front of him. He walked around to the driver's window, and the window rolled down. The man was surprised to see a squirrel behind the driver's wheel. The squirrel said, I just wanted you to know what it feels like. Perspective is everything. Uh, I have the privilege of being a soccer coach, and uh, on Saturday last week, so eight days ago, my team played the best I have ever seen them play. They were going to their position, they were spreading out the field, they were crossing the ball instead of taking the shot. It was beautiful, and that was Saturday. Wednesday's game came, and even though we won, I've never been more frustrated as a head coach. Two different times, one of the offensive players stole it from the midfielder, his own teammate. Because when the the midfielders were bringing up, the offense was running right in front of him, like pass, and they impeded his progress. And so I did something I'd never done before. At the beginning of the last game, I said, if I see you do that, I'm pulling you out the game. And uh, no one did it, so we played well yesterday. And it was good. But perspective is everything. Because if you're watching a soccer game and you're winning, you might be thinking, ah, this is great. But as a coach, sometimes I'm watching when we're losing. I'm like, this is great. Because our team is playing how they're supposed to be playing. And at that age, that's the most important thing. And sometimes we're winning. I'm going, oh, come on, kids. What have we been teaching you? See, life is about perspective. When Joshua first started playing soccer. I remember uh, his first game. He was just way out of position. So after the game, I I talked him through, this is what you do when you're in this position. And the next game, uh, he went and he played his position. I went to him after after the game. He hadn't scored a goal. He was kind of frustrated. I said, buddy, I'm so proud of you because you played where you needed to play. Because life is about perspective. When you're watching the Celtics versus the Heat game, John, if the Celtics win, then life is good. If they lose, Life is not so good. Life is about perspective. Uh, When I was a student, uh, I I have ADD and I always struggle with school. I I barely graduated high school. You know, they had summa cum laude and magna cum laude and I was oh laude. Thank goodness he graduated. And, uh, And I went to college and I struggled. And then when I went back to college when I was 27, I doubled my GPA just to tell you how good my GPA was the first time. And then when I went to GRTS that first semester, I, I worked my tail off, and I made the dean's list. Now, I learned in undergrad, the dean has a different list you don't want to be on. But in GRTS, I, I made the one you want to be on. And at the end of the semester, I go, this is awesome. I'm going to work like this all the time. But then I recognized, man, this was taking a toll on my family. I was just working so hard at school and working so hard at church. And so I made a decision there to choose not to do certain assignments. I would look at the syllabus. I don't recommend this for students, but my life stage, I would choose certain assignments, say, I don't have time to do this, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to excel. I'm going to do well on the assignments I, I do, and I'm going to pass on some others. So when it came time to walk, I was .007 short of honors. They put those little ropes around you if you're in honors. I was a James Bond short. 
3.593. And I remember getting up, and the person in front of me, so-and-so graduated with honors, so-and-so graduated with honors, so-and-so graduated with high honors, and Phil Severn graduating. And I just remember, in that moment, my, my heart sinking a little bit, but at the same time, I had to put it in perspective. Because that point zero zero seven represented times that I spent having dinner with my kids. It represented times going to my kids' games instead of doing the extra paper. It represented something really important. I had to look back and be proud that I didn't get a 3.8 or a 3.9 or as good a grade as Justin gets because I was purposeful in pulling back. And keep getting those good grades, Justin. Don't, don't, you know, do it. You got the time. You don't have the wife and the kids and all the other stuff. So, but you'll get there. All right, anyways. Life is about perspective. At 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is writing to a church that had a skewed perspective. See, as, as Paul had gone and, and shared his life, and, and he had written these letters, and we talked last week about how this was his third or fourth letter he had written, and how he'd gone and made visits. During that time, people had come in, and they'd said, Paul's not really qualified to be an apostle. Look, uh, he, he denied our personal financial support. He just he was poor. He was just a tent maker. He went and sold tents. They had other the other speakers that came in that were rich and they were affluent and they they spoke with this pizzazz. They, they were dynamic preachers. And Paul, on the other hand, wasn't very good looking. He he probably had face beat up from all the beatings and and stonings. He as the scriptures say he wasn't a prolific speaker. Um, he had changed his plans sometime, coming to Corinth, not coming to Corinth. Uh, you look at, you know, you think about uh, an affluent city. They're, they're, they're looking at, oh man, if someone, if God wants to bless someone, he'll be healthy and wealthy and have all these things. And, and Paul here was, every town he went to, he was kicked out, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was put in prison. And they're looking at that and they're saying, look, look that's not the guy you want to be. And so there was this rising pushback against Paul as an apostle. And so Paul in this letter writes as a pastor, and part of that is to defend himself, to to say this is what it looks like. This is the paradox of Christianity. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. It's better to give than to receive. The rich shall be poor, and the poor shall be rich. These were the teachings of Jesus and the teachings that Paul lived out. And the teachings that verified Paul's apostleship. So we're in this series called Cross Culture, uh, living differently than the culture, doing, living, following God that looks different than what our culture says is good. And Paul is going to express what that looks like. So as we open God's Word, let's pray and we'll ask God to speak, O oh Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You. Lord, life is about perspective and sometimes we come to hard days and and i pray for the bops uh this week lord as you'll comfort carol and and the family as they uh, mourn virgil's death I, I pray for the copelands over at lowell as they mourn patty's death and we walk through this life and we experience hardships and struggles and battles and turmoil and thank you for the perspective that those momentary moments that are so deep and hurting when compared to eternity are are small. So Lord, I just pray that you help us to have an eternal perspective, but that you'll change our perspective in the midst of good times and bad times to help us to see what you've called us to do. In your name we pray. Amen. 
As we go into 2 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 6 today. As God's co-workers. As God's co-workers. Or your, your uh, translation may say, working with Him. Have you ever thought about how amazing just that simple statement is? That God has called us with a purpose. Ephesians 10 says that we are called, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. And the Scriptures say He's going to equip us, that we are working with God. He has a purpose, He has a plan, He has a mission, and we get to work with Him, alongside of Him as He empowers us to do these things. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. See, what had happened in Corinth is, is, is that they had they lost sight of these things. They're focusing on, on, on the wrong things. And, and he taught them all about the good news of God's grace. We just read at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 here. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. If God has done that for us, don't let it go in vain. We have to be ambassadors. We have to be His emissaries. We have to tell the world. We have to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everybody who will hear it. So don't let it go in vain. Verse 2, For He says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now Paul here quotes from Isaiah. And Isaiah is prophesying about a future time that will come. Isaiah says this, This is what the Lord says, It is the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance, to say to the captives, Come out. And to those in darkness, be free. Paul's saying, now's the time. Christ has come. He's died. He's risen. And He's offered salvation to all to set the captives free. Now is the time. Don't wait. Don't let it go in vain. Don't miss your opportunity to be an ambassador. We have been reconciled to God, and so we need to share it. And he continues. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path that our ministry will not be discredited. Now, what is he saying here? Put no stumbling block in anyone's way. Now, in other places, Paul talks about this in the context of the church. Uh, In like Romans 14, he talks about not causing other brothers or sisters to stumble. Um, And and so we've we've talked through that when we talked through Romans 14, just different ways that we can live in such a way that we that we don't cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. But here I think he's talking about when we're sharing, when we're being ambassadors. We're not to put this stumbling block in other people's path. Now, the gospel itself is a stumbling block. It's offensive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In our culture, that says there are many ways, and there are lots of different ways. That's offensive. But we can allow the gospel to be offensive without us ourselves being offensive. Now, that can be hard, and it's hard to figure out those things. Uh, You know, in our home, uh, we have uh, two uh, Muslim Afghan teenagers living with us, and so we've made a decision not to to prepare any pork. 
uh, as a way to not be an offense to them, as a way to build bridges. And so now every time I go out to a restaurant and they're not there, I get bacon because I miss it. It's delicious. But we're saying, we're, we're just not going to, if that's going to be a stumbling block, we're not going to put that stumbling block in front of them. We're going to seek to do things. When I'm building relationships with my neighbors, I'm going to seek to do things that are not going to put a stumbling block in the way. And, and Paul lived that out when he was in the, in the, in the, the, the areas where they would go and, and I can't say Eripagopolis, my brain's not thinking of that word, but he's talking with all, all the people who would discuss philosophy and he would go and he says, you have all these different gods and you have all these different things, but there's one to this unknown God. That's Jesus. And, and so he would use their own philosophy and their own culture to speak to them, to, to have a way to build bridges. And so as believers, we're, we're seeking to build bridges. But on top of that, throughout this, we'll see later that if we live in a way that's inconsistent with what we say, that will be a stumbling block. Our ministry will be discredited. We preach love and we exude hate. If we, I was watching a video this week from uh, uh, the the tornadoes up in, in Gaylord, and it was a a person that was driving and a tornado was coming at them. And I don't know if we saw this video. And the, the driver was really smart. He at the last second turned into a car wash, parked in the car wash, and the tornado went through and he was safe. It was an amazing video, and I, I, I can't imagine the presence of mind as a tornado is coming at you to, to find that. And so, uh, so they posted the video, and all the comments uh, from these Christians were, well, I can't believe you would swear. And I was like, I mean, I, I get it. As Christians, we try to, we try to, to, to have uh, speech that is, that is above reproach. But to criticize, like to come in, this person may or may not know Jesus and say, okay, well, here, I'm just going to throw this out there. You shouldn't curse. Like, what is their perspective of Christians if, if that's where we're coming in and not building a bridge? This person you don't know. And it was just another reminder that, that how we interact, how we talk, how we treat people matters. Uh, during, the, during the last four, five, six, seven years, I've seen so much that, that just... Our name as Christians has been tied to certain things, uh, and, and people have this perspective of who Christians are uh, that I feel often isn't tied into what the Scriptures do. On top of that, we've seen many prominent pastors fall in these last couple of years in uh, moral failures. And those things all discredit. They all become stumbling blocks. So we want to live in such a way that our lives don't become stumbling blocks. Verse 4, rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Remember the first time I read this, I'm like, that sounds like bragging, right? That's the first thing I, you know, we were playing the soccer game, we were winning, and, and I had one of my kids is like, we're winning 5-0. I'm like, stop. We play hard, we try to win, and then you shut up. <laughs> I said, I said we want to be, we want to be good, good uh, teammates. Not, that's not the word I'm looking for. Sportsmen. Thank you. We want to demonstrate good sportsmanship. Okay, so let's let's not brag about what we're doing. And so Paul here, it seems like he's bragging, but what he's doing, this idea in the Greek is this evidence of personal characteristics or claim through action. Paul is saying that in every way. We sought to give you evidence that I am an apostle. And so he gives 28 descriptive terms of his ministry. Now, different scholars break this up in different ways. 
But the first 18 terms are open by the word in, then the next three by the word through, and the last seven by the word as. So I'm going to speak this uh, kind of a literal translation here of the Greek just so you can see it here. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, in sleepless nights, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in, whole, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God. All these different ways he demonstrated that he was a true apostle. And then he says, through the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet it's true, as unknown, and yet as well known, as dying, and behold, as we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, and yet as rejoicing, as poor, and yet not making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Paul goes on into all these things to say, this is the paradox of what it means to be a believer. St. Christendom termed this opening list as the blizzard of troubles. And so Paul is showing, as he went through these blizzards of troubles, what God was doing in and through him. John 16, Jesus told the disciples, in this world you will have troubles. Acts 20, the Holy Spirit told Paul that as he went into every city, he was going to face hardships. Acts 14, Paul told the believers, we may go through hardships, or we must go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul here is going to demonstrate what that looked like. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And he begins with four general circumstances. In great endurance, and troubles, and hardships, and in distresses. In great endurance. It's, it's this phrase that's used all throughout Paul's writings. Uh, it's used other places in the scripture. It's this idea that, that he's going to face this significant struggles and the call is to endure. Um, before I went into the ministry, I had a teacher. I've had multiple teachers tell me this, but they said, if you can do anything else, do it. And the reason why they said that is because if you're not called to ministry, it's, it's really difficult to endure the hardships. And they said, you need to be called to this. This is something you need to have certainty when you face the, tr- the struggles. You need to endure. Uh, two years ago, when Sandy and I felt uh, really called to adopt, and, uh, and we had a, a number of people share with us that, you know, as a pastor, you shouldn't do that. That's too hard. It's hard enough being a pastor and to, to adopt. Uh, that's, that's too hard, what you're, what you're trying to do. Um, and then uh, last November, we had two Muslim Afghan teenagers move into our home, and there was a honeymoon phase for three months, which was blissful. And then that was over. And there was hardships. And it's been hard. And people have asked me, would you do it again? Yes. Yes. See, God doesn't always call us to just things that are easy. Sometimes He calls us to do things that are hard. And we have to be ready to endure. God calls some, like the Stroops, to go to these mission fields that are difficult and to live in conditions that I would never purposely choose to live in. But God has given them endurance. God calls some to just work every day in a print shop 
or work every day as a plumber or any other kind of thing. And that can bring its own hardships and difficulties. And whatever God has called you to do, you do. You run the race with perseverance, the race that's marked out for you. So when hard times come, what's your posture? Do you quit? Do you run? Or do you endure? God hasn't promised us an easy life. But He's called us to endure. Paul says in troubles and hardships and distresses, torture, persecution, relational difficulties, stress, all these different things He's called to endure. But then he goes to specifics and beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard works, sleepless nights, and hunger. Some people break this up into things that were done unto him, beatings, imprisonments, riots, and things that he chose himself. Hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, sometimes fasting. Although I don't know if we can clearly delineate that because some sleepless nights were caused by the beatings, some hunger was caused by being imprisoned. But in all, in whatever way it goes, Paul is going through these things. But he went through those things in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. Now, purity is used all throughout the Scriptures, but but this is the only time that we have it here, this particular Greek word. And with the context, what's implied is the sincerity of behavior or motive. You can tell sometimes when someone's fake, when someone doesn't have pure motives, when they don't have the right motives. Paul says, in, in purity... And understanding. Now, understanding is used often by Paul, but usually it refers to the gospel. This idea of this knowledge of the gospel. Basically, having our lives shaped by the good news of God's grace. Having our lives shaped by the knowledge of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And then he says, in patience and in kindness. And fruits of the Spirit, these are lifted together. Listed together. Love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness. I tell you this. Work can be stressful, and one of the ways that you can demonstrate who Jesus is is to be a very patient and kind person. It sticks out in every single workplace, no matter where you work. When you're patient and kind, people take notice. Because we all naturally drift towards impatience. Watching the soccer game, as the kids are running towards the the ball, I can naturally, come on. Our last game, we had like 37 shots on goal, and we scored twice. And they just kept so close, so close, so close. And I was jumping on the sidelines, just, come on, let one of them go in. One of them trickled. It was like like slow motion. I don't know how it went in. And our defense kept it in their zone the whole time. You know who you are if you're here. They kept the ball, and their side of the court did an awesome job. But patience and, and kindness, in the midst of this intense hardship, Paul demonstrated this. As people called him names, as people dragged his reputation through the mud, as people said he's not really an apostle, Paul demonstrated patience and kindness. Parents, I don't really need to say it, do I? This is something we're called to do. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. You may say, Where, what, this is weird to put the Holy Spirit right there when all these other things are, are characteristics. And I believe that is because without the Holy Spirit, we can't truly be patient and kind. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't truly, sincerely love. These things are not possible on our own. We can't just grin and bear it. The Bible says the fruits of the Spirit are 
What that means is as we're walking with God, these things flow out of that relationship with Him. It's not just something that we strive for, that we hope for, that we pursue. It's something as we pursue God, He gives these to us. And in sincere love, God is love, and He's called us to love others. So sincere love flows out of our relationship and flows out of the Holy Spirit working in us. In truthful speech and in the power of God. The ESV and the NIV here translate this truthful speech, but I actually think the NASB and the King James and the New King James have it right. They translate it, uh, the word of truth. The word of truth. In the word of truth and in the power of God. I think Paul here is referring to the gospel, that in this word of truth, the Holy Spirit gives us ability to live the sincere life of love and to speak the truth of God by the power of God to people that do not know Jesus, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said that God told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I will delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak... I am strong. See, the Holy Spirit and God gave him the power to face those things. And then he had the perspective that God's grace is sufficient no matter what life brings. Then he says, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and to the left. Now I think when you think of armor, Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. We have the sword of truth and the shield of faith. And so when you think of weapons, you have your defensive weapon and you have your offensive weapon. When you're, when you're going to battle. And so Paul is saying with, with the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, we need to live right lives as we go into battle, as we try and share the good news, as we're ambassadors to a lost generation, we go into battle with the right hand and the left, weapons of righteousness. And Timothy, uh, Paul writing to Timothy says this, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you might fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. There's two people that had moral failures and their lack of righteousness caused them to stumble and others to stumble. So Paul says to Timothy, hold on. Fight the battle well. Follow your conscience. Follow God. Verse 8. Through glory and honor, bad report and good report, righteous living sustains our lives, whether people say things that are false, they're falsely accused us of stuff. The Greco-Roman culture and, and the Jewish culture were all about honor and shame as those people came into Corinth and tried to pile all this shame on Paul, his reputation and the way he lived stood but with those who knew him. So Paul experienced glory and dishonor as bad reports and good reports came on him. So he's going to share seven paradoxes, seven ways that he has been seen and Christians can be seen in the culture. And this is really what I want to hone in on. I want us to think about the difference between if I if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, then what others think of me does not matter nearly as much as what God thinks of me. 
because of that, that also means that when I face hardships, I have a source of joy that others may not have. I have a source of peace that others may not have. And so he says, genuine, yet regarded as impostors. Remember that those in Corinth denied Paul's apostleship because of his financial status, his social status, his speaking skills, and his lack of charisma, the constant struggle he faced. And so even though people were regarding him as an imposter, he was genuine. And if we live our life in the public square, we are going to be accused of being hypocrites. People are going to read Leviticus 5, whatever. I don't know which chapter. And they're going to say, you say you're a Christian, you say you can't do these things, but then you eat shellfish and you eat bacon. How can you do that? Well, that gives us an opportunity to point to Jesus, to point to the New Testament, to show how God has changed. But oftentimes they'll say, well, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. Everybody in our culture knows that. The Bible also calls us to speak truth in love. To always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, but to do so with gentleness and respect. There are times that as Christians, our culture will say, you're an imposter, but we have to live authentically so that when they know us, as it says in 1 Peter, they'll be ashamed to accuse us. Known yet regarded as unknown. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. When we're, when we're regarded as scum, we're just going to become that, and we're just going to show people who Jesus is. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Because of Paul's continued floggings and, and stonings and, and beating, his body was slowly dying, and yet he lived. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul had experienced friends and converts turning against him. He watched churches that he planted become unhealthy. He had lost friends to death. He experienced many other hardships, and yet in the midst of those things, he rejoiced. When he was arrested and Paul and Silas were in jail, what did they do? They sang praises to the Lord. As he wrote in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul continually urges Christians to rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Philippians 2, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice, even if I'm martyred, we looked at that in Philippians, and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And then what we say every Sunday, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, I was at a conference just coming out of the pandemic, and, and the speaker said that. It just stuck with me. Uh, 2020 and COVID was full of a lot of lament. And the Bible is full of lament as you read the Psalms, and it's okay to lament. But in the midst of that lament, the Scriptures call us to rejoice. And how do you, Those two things can, can sometimes be hard to do. It can be hard to rejoice in the midst of the event. On, uh, on Friday, I, uh, I hugged a widow right after she just buried her husband. On Saturday, I hugged a husband who will be burying his wife this afternoon. Well, at that viewing last night, I hugged the wife of my dear friend that passed away a few months ago, and she shared about the moments where the pain just hits out of nowhere, the most random moments. 
And we sat there together in, in a moment of, of heartache. But in all three of those circumstances, because of their faith in Christ, there were just glimpses of grace, glimpses of joy, glimpses of rejoicing. And the funeral for Virgil, as people shared the impact he's had on so many lives, as they sat around the table and discussed his impact, there were moments of grace, moments of joy. As we thought about where Virgil is now, there was rejoicing. As I talked last night with my friend who lost his wife, and we hugged and he cried, but then he just talked about some of the memories of he and his wife doing ministry together. And I had a time, because I got there early enough, to just stop and, and pray with him. In the midst of the sorrow, it was so evident that God's grace was meeting him in those moments. And as I talked to my dear friend, and as we remembered Don's life, she talked about the moments and the ways that God has been meeting her in those moments, and every single time, how God is there. See, in the midst of Paul's sorrow, he rejoiced because he knew that that those moments, so difficult, so hard, when compared with eternity, were incomparable. Philip Hughes wrote this about Paul. No sorrow, no disappointment, however severe, could ever interrupt, let alone distinguish the joy of his salvation with its vision of unclouded glory to come. For this joy was founded upon the sovereign supremacy of God who overrules all things and causes them to work together for the good of those he has called. If Paul can rejoice in the midst of sorrow, then we know that we can too. Because Jesus was victorious. And God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our time of need. And He comes alongside us. God is not a distant God. The Bible says if we draw near to God, He draws near to us. The Scriptures say that God comes near to the brokenhearted. So we say, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, good days, bad days, joyful times, hard times. We can rejoice. Paul says, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. As the church in Corinth said, look, that guy's not rich, he's not affluent, you know, we should not listen to him. Paul says, look, I may not be rich, but I've made many rich. How did he do that? He shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the most glorious riches anybody can ever have. And people said, he has nothing. He says, no, you don't understand. I possess everything. Because of what Christ has done. In Ephesians 3, he puts it this way. I pray that out of His glorious riches, that's talking about God's glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to measure of the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to the power that has worked within us, to Him be the glory to the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen. He says, my, my prayer, that you receive these glorious riches that far exceed anything that you can get here on earth, And that you will grasp God's love. 
This unimaginable love. This love that is high and wide and long and deep. That meets you in the moments of pain. That meets you in the moments of struggle. That meets you in the moments of heartache and heartbreak. That you can understand that the riches that He offers are, are far outseed anything we could have on this earth. So we go and we pursue having, having the best house and the best car and the best job and the best vacations and all those things. We'll still be left wanting. But we rest in the glorious riches of God and understand how, how wide and how deep and how 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 high and how low Christ's love is that He meets us in every single moment, then we will be rich and we will possess everything. As others say, well, you're just poor. Nope, I'm not. Verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Paul made this case as an apostle. He said, look, we've opened our hearts to you. Now please, open your heart to me. Here's a pastor who's been hurt by the church he planted, rejected, falsely accused, criticized, and yet out of love, out of pastoral heart, he just says, look, I've opened my heart to you. Would you respond? I'm speaking to you as my children. Would you open your heart to me? And so as we read through this, hearing Paul's pastoral heart, I want to I want to give three applications from from this passage. The first is that the world will view us with skepticism and misunderstand us. Paul says we're treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. When people don't understand something, they often make assumptions. So part of our role as Christians is to get to know people well enough that we can live and impact their life in such a way that they ask, why are we different? To to be in their lives. Because they're going to have all these perceptions about who we are just because of the name that we say. As people drive by and they see the name Baptist, they're going to have all these assumptions about what a Baptist church is because they've heard or had some experience about a Baptist church. When you tell someone that you're a Christian, they're going to have all these perceptions about who you are just by you saying that. And so we have a job to be Christ's ambassadors, to get into people's lives, to love people in such a way that they go, okay, why are you different? Why is your patience and your kindness and your love so strong in the midst of the difficult things you're going through? We have an opportunity to be Christ's hands and feet to a world that doesn't understand us. Two, our current circumstances shouldn't determine our posture. Paul said, in afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots and labors, sleepless night, hunger, and all those things, he says, rejoice. Now, why did I say posture? Because we have no control over emotions. When we face hard things, those emotions are going to come, no matter what we do. And so what we do is we try to have a posture of rejoicing. I love one of my favorite verses in all Scripture is when David is crying out to God and he says, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Who's he talking to? Not you. Not the nation of Israel. 
he's talking to himself. He says to himself, David, why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God? David, put your hope in God. You know the truth. You know God is here. You know God loves you. Put your hope in God. And so when we go through these difficult circumstances, we can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe in you. I trust you. I'm just a wreck. I need you. And that's where last week we talked about the Holy Spirit interpreting our cry. We don't know what to say. Sometimes the the, the best prayer is just to sit down and cry. And God hears our tears. God knows that what we're saying. And so in the midst of, of hardships and calamities and imprisonments and riots and everything else, we can say, God, I want to have a posture of rejoicing. Would you help me rejoice? Would you give me joy? Would you give me strength? Would you give me peace? I need it right now. And third, Christianity is a paradox. Because of Christ, we can respond to hate with love, trials with rejoicing, and hardship with peace. We can't do any of these things without the power of the Holy Spirit, though. So many times, uh, Paul in that passage in Ephesians talks about having abounding love, being filled with God's love. It's this idea that if we're a cup and we're trying to pour out to others, if we don't have God continually pouring into our cup, we're going to be on empty and have no ability to pour out. So when we walk with God and we ask Him for peace and we ask Him for strength and we ask Him for these things, He provides it. The Scriptures say, if anyone of you lacks wisdom, ask the Father. And He gives it abundantly. Man, so many times in these last couple months, I've just, saying that, I've sat there and prayed and said, God, we need wisdom. I don't know how many of you have raised teenagers who don't speak English, but there's a lot of wisdom that would be needed. And so many times where I've just asked God, God, I, I, don't, I don't have the strength to go through tonight, and so I need you. And God provides it. What God has called me to do, I believe He will see me through. And so we continually recognize that, that Christianity is a paradox, that our circumstances don't have to be what determines our feelings. That we can go to God and say, God, I need to change my heart, change my mind, change, give me peace, give me strength, give me joy. As I walk into work, and that annoying coworker is going to be there, and just tip, 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 tip at my, and I'm not talking about my life for the record, but they're going to be there. God, give me patience. As I walk into the door at home, and maybe I know everybody's had a really rough day, and tensions are high. God, help me not respond in anger. Help me respond with patience. As I go to a family get-together, I know that the people that I'm with don't know Jesus and they have misperceptions about what Christianity is. God, help me to be a light in this moment. In those moments, that's where God meets us. And that's why Paul could say, I'm in prison, when I'm beaten, when I'm in riots, when I'm stoned, when I'm shipwrecked, and all those things, God's grace is sufficient for me. And God's grace isn't just sufficient for Paul. It's sufficient for us. So maybe walk in that grace. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for these reminders. Lord, I know I've been crying them out this week. Rejoice in the Lord 
God, I, I just wanted you to give me a heart of joy and rejoicing. As I lose friends, as I walk through hard situations, and I've just felt your presence, and I thank you for that, Lord. And I, I pray that I'm sure there are many in this room that are going through hard circumstances, going through hardships, going through loss. I pray that in those moments that they turn to you and they experience the, the peace that only you can provide. Lord, for us as we're called to be ambassadors, let us live a righteous life, putting on the shield of faith and the sword of truth and go to battle as we do that, to do it in such a way that we don't put stumbling blocks in people's lives, but that yet instead our love and our kindness and our patience opens the doors for conversations to share who Jesus is so that people can see we're different and why we're different and that we serve a God that meets us in the midst of our pain. Lord, we thank you that you're not different, but that you draw near to the brokenhearted, that, that you are close. You're not distant, you're close, and you're with us. In your name we pray, amen.